That's Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please hear now God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. If you would, please now join me in prayer. Father, as we now approach uh, Your Holy Word, and as we approach these first few verses of the book of Acts, Lord, it is my prayer that You would impress upon us the truths that are contained within this passage. uh, That You would allow this to become very real to us. uh, That we do have a living and a reigning Savior. And we have a Savior who is coming back. Lord, we pray that You would take these truths, that You would take this passage, that You would strengthen Your people, that You would give them fresh resolve in following after Christ. And Lord, that You would be pleased to continue to build us up and allow us to be a faithful church. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a culture that is obsessed with the new, that is obsessed with progress, the the new, the better. And it's clear that the new is not always better. If you've ever uh, purchased a new product because you liked the previous edition, sometimes you find that the newest edition uh, breaks or it's, it's not of the same quality. And so new is not always better. But as we turn to the pages of the book of Acts, what we see in these first 11 verses is that there are new things that are taking place. And it is better. There are new things that are taking place for the people of God, and it is progress for them. It is progress. The the book of Acts begins with a bang. It begins with uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And there are many things in the book of Acts which are are non-repeatable, that are non-reversible, that took place in the laying of the foundation of the New Testament church. 
And we see progress. New events that take place in redemptive history that are both new and better. And what I want us to see from this passage is that the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Spirit is both new and better. That it is progress for the church. That the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Spirit is progress for the church. And I want to look at this passage under three different headings. I want to look at the the prologue of this text. First, uh, just the first three or so verses. Luke's prologue. Second, I want to look at the promise that Luke records for us here in this text. And thirdly, I want to look at the progress that we see in this text. So three Ps. Prologue, promise, and progress. We'll begin first with the prologue. If you read the first few verses of the book of Acts, you see that there, is, uh, there are familiarities. There are things that are in common between the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it should not come as a surprise that there are similarities because Luke is the one who authored both Luke and Acts. And some people have gone so far to say that with uh, Luke and Acts, we have volume one of, of Jesus and His works and His teaching. And in Acts, we have volume two of Jesus and His works and His teachings. Uh, Luke began the book of Acts with a retelling of what happened in the 24th uh, chapter of the Gospel of Luke. He lists many concepts which are also seen there. And just as Luke uh, said in his Gospel that he was writing for Theophilus an orderly account, uh, in the same way he's also doing so in the book of Acts. He is writing in order that Theophilus, we don't know a whole lot about him, but his name likely means uh, lover of God or loved by God. And Luke wants Theophilus to know that Christianity is historical, that it's real, that these things actually happened. He wants Theophilus and the readers of his gospel and the book of Acts to have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. This is not made up stuff, which sets Christianity apart from many religions that are simply not historical. But we ought to ask how is it possible that Jesus is going to continue to do and teach things? if, as we learn in this chapter, that He's going to ascend up into heaven at the right hand of God the Father? And the answer is that He's going to continue to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit and through His apostles. Now, during the 40 days after Jesus had risen from the grave, He periodically appeared before His disciples. He periodically appeared before His disciples and He met with them. And His presence confirmed that He was not merely a phantom. He was not merely a ghost. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we read how Jesus actually sat upon the, uh, upon the, upon the beach by the, by the seaside and He had breakfast with His disciples. And as Jesus met with His disciples, they saw for themselves that everything that Jesus had spoken of was true. Everything that Jesus had said before He went to the cross, it was true and it was accurate and it had been fulfilled to a T. 
that the Messiah really did have to go to the cross, that He really did have to suffer and die and rise on the third day. And yet these appearances were not just times of fellowship and, and, and proving that Jesus was really alive. They were also times of instruction. There were times of instruction. If you look at verse 3, it says, He presented Himself alive to them after His sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Also in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 24, it says that Jesus provided instruction. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Can you imagine being a part of that initial time of instruction? Where, where the first time for the disciples, the Scriptures begin to make sense. As they, as they look back upon their Hebrew Bible, upon the Old Testament, they see that the entire book is about Jesus Christ. That the entire book points to what He's going to accomplish. That it points to His sufferings. That it points to His exaltation. And eventually, that it is the Messiah who is going to build the Kingdom of God. If you've ever studied the Scriptures, and I, I believe with a, with a congregation like this, most of you can, can understand. If you've ever studied a passage of Scripture that on, on the first, second, maybe even third readings, you're, you're, you're reading your Bible and you're thinking, what on earth does this mean? What, what is the meaning of this passage? How, how do the different parts fit together? And you don't understand it, but eventually God gives you illumination in order that you might see what is within that passage and it clicks and the light bulb goes off, that is an exhilarating moment, is it not? That you, that you understand what God is saying through His Word and it's, it's not foggy. That's, that's nothing compared to what the apostles experienced. They finally saw how it all came together. It would be a wonderful and exhilarating time for them. And as we study the rest of the pages of the New Testament, we see that 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 time of instruction during these 40 days was very beneficial. Because as you read through the pages of the New Testament, you see that the apostles, they understood very well how the Scriptures fit together. They understood very well how this sacrificial system pointed to Christ. They understood very well how the prophecies of Isaiah all pointed forward to the coming Messiah. This was a very beneficial and productive time of teaching. And he speaks to them of the, of the kingdom of God. Now when we're, when we're speaking of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God expands as people recognize the King. As they recognize Jesus Christ. Now when we're speaking of the, the kingdom of God in the sense of, of the, the triune God, God is always entirely sovereign over all of His creation. But the, the kingdom of God, as we see it with Jesus Christ as a mediator, when people come to, to recognize the king, the kingdom expands. So with that, let's turn to our second point, which is the promise. In verses 4 and 5, Luke says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
boat to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now just as we come to this passage, I want us to recognize the the particular circumstances. Once again, Jesus has just risen from the grave. His disciples are absolutely convinced that He is the Messiah, that He is the One who is the Savior of the world. That remission of sins is only going to be given through His name. And we might think, as we read this passage, well, it is time for them to pack up and to get out and start talking. Start spreading the good news. And yet, kind of counterintuitively, what we see here is not what we might expect. Jesus says if they're going to go out, if they're going to become effective witnesses for Him, then they need to wait. They need to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father. Now, what exactly is the promise of the Father? We don't have to read much further in the passage, much less further in the book of Acts to find out that the promise of the Father is actually the Holy Spirit. There's a few key texts in the Old Testament where God tells His people that He is going to give the Holy Spirit in in a measure that He did not in the Old Testament. Passages in the Old Testament such as Ezekiel 36-27 confirm this promise. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so just as John the Baptist had been baptizing with water, pointing to the the remission of sins, so Jesus is going to baptize his people. And this baptism will enable the apostles to carry forth the mission, to be faithful in sharing the gospel. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke specifically mentions Jesus' words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Luke 24, rather, excuse me. Jesus said, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That sounds like something. I remember as a, as a very young child, maybe about six years old, when my family was uh, living in New England. Uh, it was actually when my, my father was attending seminary at uh, Gordon-Conwell, just outside of Boston. And we were on our way back from church, and I remember it was a, it was a fall day, and if you've ever been to New England in the fall, the, the leaves are actually absolutely beautiful. And we were driving back along a winding road, and I remember uh, my father asking my sister and I, who were sitting in the back seat, what do you think Jesus meant when he said that he would give his apostles power? And as someone who is six years old, I thought, well, that, that sounds like something pretty exciting. I know I've seen uh, the movie Star Wars where people are able to, to move things with the force, but... Certainly, that's not the type of power that he's talking about. And it's not. This isn't the force. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit enabling the apostles to carry forward the mission with boldness. To validate the mission with miracles. To continue to be faithful even in the midst of death. It is this power that is going to enable them 
to faithfully, truly, and boldly bring out the message of the Old Testament as it points to Christ and call others to acknowledge the King. That is the power. As the Lord told Zerubbabel in the book of Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And in the same way, the driving force behind the early church is going to be Christ working through His Holy Spirit, by means of His Holy Spirit in His church. And He says that these apostles, these who have been called out to be His representatives, they're going to bring the Gospel not just to the Jews. They're going to go to Judea. They're going to go to Samaria. They're going to go to the ends of the earth. And if you study the book of Acts, you see that this kind of is a a good table of contents for how the book is laid out. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now the the ends of the earth in this context, uh, some some view this as uh, the ends of the earth, meaning uh, that the Gospel needs to be carried all the way to... uh, Places like North America. And while we certainly do have the Great Commission, which is given to the entire church, the mission that is given to the apostles is the laying of the foundation. And in the the New Testament, we can see that the ends of the earth is not uh, the entire world, but rather it's the known world. It's the whole Roman Empire. That these apostles are going to bring the Gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. They're going to bring it to the furthest reaches of the known world. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1-6 that the Gospel has, as he's speaking to the Colossians, has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So Paul is saying at that time that the Gospel, it is spread throughout the entire known world. It is bearing fruit. And as we turn to the pages of Acts chapter 28, we see that this has been accomplished. That Paul has gone to the ends of the earth. That Paul is in Rome. He is going to Caesar. He's going to preach the gospel even in Rome. So this means that the, the foundation has been laid, but this does not mean that the church is off the hook for faithful witness. Yes, the apostles were called to be faithful witnesses in the first century and to, to lay the foundation Uh, But we are called to still be those who are faithful witnesses in our own communities. We are called to be faithful witnesses and and send missionaries calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. As we read on, we see that the, uh, the apostles are still a little bit confused. And if you read verse 6, it says that they want to know at this time, Jesus, you're, you're saying that the Spirit's going to be poured out. You're saying that the, the Messianic age is beginning. Does this mean that now, finally, we are going to be able to throw off the yoke of Rome? That once again, uh, Jerusalem is going to rise up and to be a great power among the ancient Near East. Does that mean that finally we're going to have the kingdom restored? As John Calvin famously said, he said, there are as many errors in this question as words. That they're not understanding what Jesus had taught. That they haven't quite understood yet that this is going to be a spiritual kingdom. That it's not going to come by might. That it's not going to come by power. That it's not going to come by forcing people to obey Jesus Christ with the edge of the sword. 
but rather it is going to be the Holy Spirit that will be the driving force. It is going to be the Spirit empowering the church to bear faithful witness and the Spirit renewing the hearts of dead men and women so that they will embrace Jesus Christ and love Him. Which brings us to our third point. Verses 9-11, through we see progress. Thus far, we've seen the prologue, the... We've seen the the prologue, the promise, and finally now we see progress. Verse 9, 10, and 11 speak of Jesus being taken away from his church. That he is going to ascend up into heaven. And this is progress. This is progress. Now we, we might think, we might question... How is it that this is progress? Jesus has, has been with His disciples. He has died. He has, uh, they have gone through much grief. He's now been resurrected and He's been with them for 40 days. He's instructing them. These are all good things. Shouldn't the teacher stay with His disciples? Why would Jesus want to ascend up, to, up into heaven and leave His disciples without a teacher? Not so fast. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14 that it is to their advantage that he would go away. In John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said. Then just a a few chapters later in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So the the ascension of Christ, Him leaving His disciples in, in bodily form, it is not loss. It is gain. It is progress. This is a good thing for the church. It, it marks an irreversible and unrepeatable event in redemptive history. And the fact that the, the angels, that we see angels in this passage, uh, that, that should let us know that something really exciting is happening. If, if you've ever noticed, when you read throughout the Bible, anytime angels show up, God's going to do something really interesting. He's going to do something really interesting. And as the apostles are looking, as they're straining their eyes up into heaven, trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus as He ascends, these angels show up and they... They question, why, why are you looking up? Which seems to be a, a mild and, and subtle rebuke saying, take your eyes off heaven and, the, and Jesus as He's ascending because right now your task is not there. Your task is upon the earth. Your task is to accomplish the will of your Savior who is in heaven, but He has called you to accomplish it upon the earth. And we also learn from this text the wonderful truths that Jesus has not merely ascended, but He is coming back. This is one of those key doctrines that we find in the Apostles' Creed that is indispensable to the Christian faith, that not only has Christ lived, died, and resurrected, but He has gone to the right hand of God the Father, and He is coming back. He is coming back, and He will do so, it says, in the same way that He went into heaven. Not necessarily mean that he'll be wearing the exact same clothes, but he will come back bodily. He will come back visibly. He will come back 
on the clouds of heaven. How should this truth impact us? What is the what is the payoff as we read and believe these verses? Well, first, it is to our advantage that Christ is at the right hand of God. It is there that He rules and reigns as our King. As our Shorter Catechism says, uh, how does Christ execute the office of a King? Well, Christ executes the office of a King in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and conquering all of His and our enemies. He does that from heaven. At the right hand of God in heaven, Christ is our elder brother who makes intercession for us, continual intercession for us, as the author to the Hebrews says. And it, also, it should also drive us to holy living. When I was in my last semester of undergraduate studies, I took a class on eschatology and the book of Revelation. And eschatology is just one of those fancy words where it means the study of end time stuff. The study of end time stuff. And my professor, who was a very, very godly man who had studied the scriptures his entire life, made a really interesting comment that has always stuck with me. He said that most people, when they think about eschatology, end time stuff, it, it leads to speculation. And that's where, really where they camp out. But as you, as you look at the New Testament, as you look at the apostles, when they write about end time stuff, it is inseparably connected to ethics. When they think about end time stuff, when they think about Jesus coming back, they almost always say, then how should we live right now? How should we be godly people as we await the return of our Savior? And I think there's wisdom in that statement. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The angels are clear in the book of Acts that Christ will return. He will return bodily. He will return visibly. But as you study the rest of the book, the apostles are very clear that He will also return as judge, calling everyone to account for their works. Acts chapter 10, And He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that He is the One. Jesus is the One appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So we are summoned, and we are called to be witnesses who summon the world to bend the knee to Lord Jesus now and to have him as our elder brother, to have him as our advocate, to have him as our savior now, so that we might not have to face him as angry judge on the last day. So I'll conclude with just two two thoughts of application. First, the centrality of the Holy Spirit in effective witness and ministry. Christ is in heaven, but you and I have been called to labor and witness here upon earth. And we ought to be those who long for heaven. 
This is something that the Apostle does in his letter to the Philippians. He talks about how he, he would like to be with Christ. He wouldn't mind dying and being with Christ. And yet he says, but it would be fruitful for me to stay with you, to continue to labor. And so I think we ought to emulate Paul in that, in that we should be constantly ready, willing, excited about going to be with the Lord, but at the same time that we would be productive that we would be faithful in our callings and station in life in which God has placed us here upon the earth in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And when you think about it, the, when you think about how someone is going to have a productive, an effective, a meaningful life, can it be done without dependence upon the Holy Spirit? No. The Christian life cannot be done without dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It's not merely enough to say we're just going to pull up our bootstraps and obey. We must be constantly drawing our our life, our source, our obedience even from Christ through the Spirit. Secondly, the certainty of Christ's return. Uh, Few things are certain in life. Often we say death and taxes are certain. And yet we know that it is certain that Christ is going to return. That is, as surely as the sun came up this morning, as, as surely as you are hearing my voice right now, Christ is going to return. He is going to bring His kingdom to consummation. He is going to deliver His people into the eternal kingdom where they will dwell with Him forever. That is certain. One of the the spiritual disciplines that I think that we we often struggle with as as modern believers is the uh, discipline of meditation. Uh, In in past, many Christians would uh, spend quite a bit of time meditating on various topics. Some people today might say, oh, well, that's just a waste of time. You're just thinking about nice things. No, when we meditate upon things, when we store God's Word in our heart and, and press it in, it has a wonderful way of affecting the way that we live. Because we're constantly thinking about the fact that Christ is going to return, it ought to drive us to holy living. And as we meditate upon that more, I believe that we will. So I would challenge you to keep in view always the certainty of Christ's return. That we would strive to live faithfully in both the little matters and the big ones. So that we, by God's grace, might hear those wonderful words upon the final day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we, we thank you that you have granted to your church the promise of the Holy Spirit that You have created new life in us, that You have enlivened us, that You have opened our spiritual eyes, that You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that You would make us those who would now respond in obedience, that we would respond in gratitude. And Lord, that we would keep our eyes upon Christ as He has ascended into heaven and keep an eye upon His return. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.